your home. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Micah. Strange scripture reading. I know it's like just the greeting of uh, Philemon. It's, it's a short book anyway. Greg had actually joked with Micah, hey, you could just read the whole book this morning. Uh, that would actually not be a bad uh, exercise for us to do, but um, this morning... There's a phrase in there that I want us to focus on as we've been going through uh, this series on the ways in which we are called to serve in the church, the, what I'm calling uh, the chore list. Um, we've talked about the idea that there are people who are called to be uh, shepherds, to be um, leaders within the church. Uh, as we saw this morning, uh, you know, people who are called to, to guide and care for the flock of God's people, their ministry is primarily to the church, although they're not exempt from the ministry of the church. Remember, we've made that distinction a couple times now. There's building up the body of Christ for the work of the church, to our world, to our community, to seek and save the lost, right? Uh, and we have teachers, we have elders, we have shepherds, we have evangelists. All of these are kind of enumerated as people who are meant to build up the church. But then we have all these other people that are listed in Scripture as individuals who are called uh, uh, by Paul co-workers. They're called uh, individuals who are, are worthy of recognition. He greets them. We went through the whole end of the book of Romans and talked about all these individuals whose names are listed. And some of them we don't know a thing about, but their work is significant enough and well-known enough to Paul that he wants to recognize them and make sure that they know that they aren't going unappreciated. And every one of us is called to some kind of ministry. We talked about the idea that within our own congregation, we have people that might largely be anonymous, that you may not know them personally. When you get to be a big enough church, uh, there are, by virtue of scale, some people you're just never going to know particularly well. You'll know their name, maybe. You'll recognize their face. You've probably said, good morning, how you doing to them about a thousand times over the course of your life, but you don't have a close, deep, personal relationship, and maybe the ways in which they serve the kingdom of God are unknown to you, but they're not unknown to God or to those who are served. But you know, the church didn't necessarily always have that problem in the first century. In fact, uh, I, I want to be clear with us this morning, what we are doing today is a good thing. I want to start by telling you that, in, in case whatever we might take away from this message today, uh, I don't want to downplay the gathering of the saints here at the Newburgh Church of Christ on a Sunday morning in, in larger numbers than uh, might be able to fit in any one of our homes, okay? I want to be clear about that. But over and over again, we see in the New Testament, Paul used this phrase when he's referring to either people he's writing to or people he's asking to be greeted by the people to whom he's writing. And he uses this phrase, the church that meets in your or their home. We saw it in the book of Romans last week, and this morning we see it at the beginning of the book of Philemon. And I, I really think that this is an important statement for us to draw out for just a second here, okay? Uh, the church that meets in your home. How many of us are capable of saying that the church meets in our home. I think 
if we stopped and thought about it for a little bit, we might be able to justify something like, well, my family reads the Bible and prays together. That makes us the church meeting in my home. Well, you know, that's something that's expected of all of us, and Paul doesn't say that about every person that he writes to or about. Otherwise, you know, you would expect that the predominant majority of the Christians that he's writing to would have a church meeting in their home if he's just talking about a family group that's gathering together. But Paul says this about specific individuals. I want to look this morning at uh, three passages, Romans chapter 16, verse 5. We talked about uh, Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, who appear multiple times in the New Testament as kind of this ministry powerhouse in a lot of ways, the the work that they do together. Paul encourages uh, the Romans to greet them and also the church in their house. In Colossians 4, verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Philemon 1, verse 2 says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. These are three instances here where Paul recognizes that the church needs a place to meet. And that there are some people whose ministry to the church is having people meet in their homes. Now, it's important for us to recognize that by that virtue, there are things that are happening here this morning that would be completely unrecognizable to the first century church. And that's okay. I want to be clear about that. Uh, In fact, um, when we take a look at what the church did together, all we have to do is go to Acts chapter 2. This is like the Church of Christ favorite passage in the whole world, right? This is how we build the church. This is what the church is supposed to look like. It says, So continuing daily with one, uh, uh, one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We want to be that kind of church, right, that is growing daily, that the number who are being saved, who are a part of our body here, we want to be able to count that, like, exponentially, if we can. But there's a little phrase in there. They went from house to house. The church didn't have a fixed meeting place in Acts chapter 2. There was no, you know, hey, let's put together a board that's going to buy a piece of property and then we're going to erect a building there and everyone will come and gather there. Uh, They oftentimes met in the temple court. They would join together there. They would spend time proclaiming. Uh, Eventually that had to stop because the Jews weren't particularly happy with the ways in which the uh, church was proclaiming maybe even against the same temple that they were gathering together in. Uh, You know, and eventually midway through the century, the temple is gone altogether, not a particularly convenient meeting place when you're standing on a pile of rubble. And so they stopped meeting together at the temple, but they started meeting together in homes. And over time, it became a little bit more organized. Instead of going from house to house to house, individuals who had a large enough property would invite the church into their space together. And they'd have these houses that were arranged with these common areas in the middle. And they'd gather in these common areas for a meal together. They'd gather for uh, the opportunity to worship and fellowship together. But, you know, there, again, are some things that would not have necessarily happened. These things would be unrecognizable to the first century church. And I want to start with communion trays, all right? I like communion trays. I'm responsible for all of the communion trays we have here in this room this morning because I think they're a good thing. It gives us a chance to conveniently and easily pass them. But you know what? 
in the first century church, they had a table, and they sat around the table together, and they would pass the actual loaf in the one cup, and nobody here is advocating for one cup this morning, you know, I, it's terrible to be in a one cup church when you're on the last row, Christian is like, I'm glad we are not a one cup church, right? Uh, <laughs> but they, they were meeting in small groups, groups of maybe 15, 20, 25 people in a particularly large house. And so they would share together. They would pass the cup. Maybe they would pour into separate cups. We don't know. You know, when Jesus passed the cup around the room, it seems pretty clear that he passed the cup. But it's important to recognize even communion trays are something that would be unrecognizable to the first century church. Pews or rows of seating as we have this morning. Again, they'd probably be sitting in someone's living space. They might be reclining. When we read about Jesus having a meal with his disciples, uh, you know, he's, he's reclining at table with them. When they're, you know, gathered together, there is an ease and a comfort with one another. And it's not necessarily an auditorium-style seating like we have this morning. Not that this is bad. Again, I actually kind of like this. It's, you know, it's not terrible. It would be nice if we could see each other's faces a little more, but I get to see all of your faces. So as far as I'm concerned, this is working out all right. Songbooks. I want to be clear with you, paper costs money, and we kind of take it for granted, but in the first century, paper didn't even exist yet. In fact, what they had was parchment, and they had animal skins, and they had, you know, scrolls that they made out of these, uh, you know, papyrus. Uh, Norma was teaching the kids, or is teaching the kids this week, about, like, papyrus and the the writing on the scrolls and the way that uh, scripture was transmitted, and it's fragile and breakable, which is why you rolled it and you didn't fold it, because the second you folded a piece of papyrus, It was broken forever beyond repair. Songbooks are something that's convenient for us. Projected slides, something convenient for us. But those things didn't exist in the first century. They sang together, but not out of a songbook. They didn't have bulletins. You know, when you have a group of 12 to 20 people, it's pretty easy to get to know what's going on in the community, right? You kind of pass it by word of mouth. But again, by virtue of our size, not everyone knows what's going on with everybody else. Audio projection. This right here would be a, a miracle for them. Uh, the, I don't know if you've ever watched the most recent season of The Chosen, but Jesus is preaching to a large crowd of people, and his disciples are staggered so that they can repeat the things that he's saying so that the people, the large crowd at the back, can hear what it is Jesus is saying. Because they don't have audio projection. That's not the way that it worked. It's actually, we know for a fact that this is the way that public address worked in the first century. We have accounts of it happening. You essentially had the main speaker, and then they would stagger people out so that people further away. They didn't have that problem, though, in the first century church because they were meeting in a small room in houses that were, you know, again, maybe 12, 20, 25 people. They didn't have video projection. Believe it or not, they just used little CRTs. No, um, <laughs> there were no screens for them to deal with. Uh, so last week when the power you know, issue happened, uh, they weren't without their, their song slides because the song slides were all up here already. They weren't without the, the uh, you know, live stream because there was no live stream to be spoken of. Believe it or not, YouTube was like second century, not first century. And so uh, visual projection was just not a a deal. Uh, The order of service. 
Now, most of us know that this morning we had a disruption to our order of service. Things did not go the way that they went last week, which is actually grateful for that after the fiasco of the the power outage, right? Uh, Usually, we get here and we kind of know what's going to happen. We can kind of talk about, like, this is the order in which things are going to go. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians that order is important, but it's not a granted thing. And there's still some flexibility in the way that Paul talks about the worship that happens in the Corinthian church. Order of service is a pretty modern thing, and it's convenient when you have a group this size. It's convenient when you have a group of 40 people. It's convenient, really, from anywhere about 30 people up to have a particular order in mind. How are we going to do things? Who's going to be involved? Who's scheduled to serve this particular Sunday? A song leader, all right? Uh, Again, y'all wouldn't be looking at me standing at the front of the room on a Sunday morning in the first century. You also wouldn't be looking at one person standing up front who's leading the singing. You would be sitting together in maybe a circle or a, a, a little you know, blob of people inside of a room together, and someone might start a song, but they weren't necessarily the song leader. And in fact, Paul tells everyone to encourage each other with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. The idea being that when you arrive, you might have something to share and contribute. Now, our, our friends in the, the Friends Church, wow, that's really convenient. The Friends in the Friends Church, they, they have practiced this for a long time. They've become a little bit more organized than they used to be, but uh, uh, this is the whole idea here, that someone is going to come and make sure that they've got a song to sing. And that happened in the first century. We're a little different in that way. Four-part harmony, all right? This is something I love about the churches of Christ. I love singing in four-part harmony. I'm a choir kid. I'm a band kid. I'm a, a musical theater kid. I like people knowing their different parts, and I like to be able to sing my part and hear you singing your part. But a lot of the church music for the first several hundred years of Christianity was organum, singular part, or it was call and response. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm going to tell you some of the stuff that the church would have known. A dedicated building. We've already discussed that. We don't need to discuss it more. Service and class, all right? We like the educational system that we have today, but you know what? Even outside of the U.S., the idea of a worship time and a class time is somewhat foreign. Uh, At the Pepperdine Lectures a couple of years ago, N.T. Wright, who is a a British theologian, really smart New Testament scholar, one of my favorite authors, uh, was was, uh, invited to come and speak and carry out some small group sessions. Uh, He did, you know, a big group session for everybody and then had some small invited sessions that people were able to attend. And someone asked him, you know, a lot of people bag on the, the church in America, uh, say that we're all wrong about everything all the time, and, uh, you know, what is something positive you could say about the church in the United States? And he immediately jumped in and he said, Sunday school. Sunday school is the best thing that the American church has done for the church as a whole. The idea that we would gather to worship And then we would have more time together to fellowship and the study of Scripture is a beautiful and wonderful thing. I was like, thank you for having something good to say about the American church, right? Sunday school is something that is 
fairly unique in our history. Uh, Going back just a couple hundred years, the idea that you would gather and then stick around after worship for class or come early before the whole church had assembled for our class time. Now, there were groups of people that might have like a catechism where they would go and study the particular teachings of their group, of the Catholic Church, of the Lutheran Church, and they would learn about those things. But as soon as you were done with that, you were off the hook. There was no more class, and uh, you oftentimes meant that you could check in for worship, check the box, and you were done. There was no service and class. There was just a time of worship and fellowship with one another. This is the one that maybe gets most of us. Bibles as we think of them. We are tremendously blessed as a people to be able to go to any room in this building, almost any room in this building, and pick up a Genesis through Revelation copy of the, the Bible that we can personally read from cover to cover, that we can engage in wonderful ways. But you know, they, they had scriptures, but it was usually up here. Or it was a letter that had come from one of the apostles that they would read with one another, and it would be treasured, and it might be copied and passed on. It might be handed from church to church. We as Christians today, they wouldn't recognize this. Like we hand, first of all, a book they wouldn't recognize. They'd recognize a scroll or a pile of papers, right? But a book itself, bound the way that our scriptures are, to see the marvel of the technology of paper and print and the easy and fast reproduction that we have of those things, it would blow them away, it would also really disappoint them that we have access to it and we utilize it so little in our personal lives. That's another topic for another time. Not included on here, pants. I am tremendously grateful for pants. The first century church would walk in here and like, where are all your robes? Uh, I, I'm grateful for pants. That's something that you know we have on the first century church that they don't have. Um, Things that would be unmistakable to the first century church, though. A shared meal. A gathering together to break bread. We read it in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We read it again in 1 Corinthians. We read about it in the the, uh, letter to the Thessalonians. We read over and over and over again about the church sharing a meal together, breaking bread with one another. Paul has to address some of this because some people are performing acts of gluttony And he's like, hey, tone it back. You got homes to eat in. When you gather together, make sure that everyone is there and then participate in the meal together. He talks about the agape feast, the love feast. This was a common thing for the first century churches. They would gather, they would share in a meal together as a part of their worship and leading up to the Lord's Supper. That would be recognizable to them discussion of family and community needs. They would gather together and they would talk about what was going on in their lives so that then when they prayed for one another, they would have specifics to pray about. The spontaneous and planned proclamations. Individuals who would get up and do a little bit of what I'm preaching or doing right now, preaching. They would share with the congregation an encouraging word, a thought, a a meditation on scripture, something that would encourage them to then go and live life in light of their relationship with Christ. Some people would come planned. Some people would come unplanned. 
Paul addresses this again in the letter to the Corinthians, that there are a lot of people that are there making proclamations, and he'd like for them to do it just orderly enough that like one of you at a time, okay? Not, not all at once, because that's just going to be chaos. But this idea of, pro- and, and you have to have not planned it for there to be more than one person speaking at a time, right? Like ideally, that's the situation. Nobody's planning you know, Chris and Kyle preaching at the same time at you guys, and you're trying to discern who's saying what. Singing. This would have been a call and response or a psalmic congregational singing. They would sing together the scriptures that they were studying together. Uh, We know for a fact that they were also writing their own hymns because Paul quotes one of them, and, uh, you know, that, that was happening. Songs that were about Jesus and about his divinity, his salvation that he had offered to the Christians, but they didn't, they didn't sing the way that we sing. Oftentimes it was a call and response, and this was a way of memorizing these songs. One person would know the song inside and out, and they would sing to the congregation, and the congregation would sing back to them. And we've got songs that we do in that way sometimes, but, but we don't do it very often. That's much of how the first century church taught was through the singing of the psalms, through the writing of meditative music about Jesus. Now, the early church was actually, in many ways, they were kind of like the uh, Christians of the 1980s, like push against the rock and roll culture, right? Uh, Maybe Christians of the 70s and 60s as well. Uh, We don't listen to the secular music. But later Christians, second, third, fourth century, said, you know what, there are some good tunes out there. Imagine if that beautiful, wonderful music were set with words that glorified God. And so the Christians started to become the composers of the popular music in the world. It's how you get someone like Beethoven or Johann Sebastian Bach who write these beautiful, wonderful, uh, glorious songs about their expectation of the return of Christ or their meditation on uh, the glory of God. First century church, though, they didn't have big, loud worship services because there were only 25 of them in a room most of the time. And they sang together the scriptures. The recitation, reading, and again singing, of scripture. Everyone was to come and encourage one another with a reflection, a word, a thought of encouragement for the building up of the church for the edification of one another. A couple of years ago, I think Sean uh, taught a class on the one another passages in the New Testament, uh, throughout Scripture, really. And a lot of those passages deal with the idea that every member of the church has a ministry to every other member of the church to build up, to encourage, to edify, to comfort, to support one another. And they oftentimes did that through the reading and sharing of scripture. Giving to support ministry. If you go back to Acts, you can end up seeing that over and over again, the church is giving. They're selling property. They're making sure that the poor are cared for, that the widows are fed, that new and exciting uh, ministry opportunities are supported. As Paul goes out uh, to do his uh, missionary work as an apostle, as Barnabas is traveling alongside him, uh, they, they are being supported and funded by the giving of the church wherever they go. Giving was a regular thing, and so they'd be sitting in their homes, and they'd talk about the work of the church, and they'd make sure that whatever was needed to fund that work was given. 
community prayer. They would sit together and pray, oftentimes about the needs that they had discussed, about a desire for the Spirit to be present in the lives of each of them as they went about being Christians, light in the world, being a city on a hill. Reflection on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This morning, Corey specifically said, that is the primary reason that we are here together today. It's the, one of the reasons we oftentimes have communion at the end of service is it, it is the climax of what we do together. It is the thing that we, we start with. I'd, I've often said communion should either be at the end of service or the beginning of service. It should either be the thing that we come together and say, this is what we are all about today, or this is what we have been all about today. The early church gathered to participate in communion together. If nothing else happened, what they were about was sharing in the Lord's Supper. As they gathered together in houses across the city, they would sit and pray together and reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Remembering his death and proclaiming it until he returned. These are the things that the first century church would look at and say, this is what we know church to be. And a lot of the other stuff on the previous page, not all of it, but a lot of it, it's, it's artifacts of our time. Or maybe even artifacts of previous times. Things that we have inherited from other Christians over time to facilitate church in new and different ways. But I want to encourage you this morning with this thought. There are things that we cannot do as a body of 150 or 200 that the first century church would have expected we would do. This morning, we could have one person get up and share about what's going on in their life and pray for them, lay hands on them, weep with them, rejoice with them. We do that on occasion. But this is a difficult space for someone to be confessional, to share the depths of their heart, the struggles that they're experiencing. And while this is a good place and a good thing for us to be doing today, I think some of what we have done as a, a, a church body in the last several hundred years, is we have become less personal in our worship together. And I think we could go back even more than several hundred years ago. As the church developed and was able to buy land and build systems and structures and set up global uh, networks and, and work in ways that it had never worked before, it did become a little bit more of a checkbox I did the things I'm supposed to do, not because I belong there, but because I want my reward. Not because I'm a part of the family, and this is the house that I live in, and the family I belong to, and the work that I do because I'm a part of this family. But because if I don't show up on Sunday morning, my name might not be in the book of life. 
And while I don't think any of us would confess that idea in front of anybody else here, I think sometimes it lies underneath our practice. And I want to encourage you this morning to think about this. If, if Paul is thankful for the church that meets in people's homes, should we maybe pursue being the church that meets in people's homes? If there are things that by virtue of being, and I know this sounds crazy, a large church, because we know of churches that are thousands of people, but by West Coast standards, by, by American standards in general, if you go and you do the research, we are a big church. Churches over 40 are big churches in most of the country. Churches over 100 are outliers across the board in the United States. I'd, 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 most recent research I read was like under, uh, or over 60% of churches in the United States are smaller than 100 people. And of those, something like 95% of them are under 40 people. We have some difficulty as a large church doing some of the things that I think would have been taken for granted by the first century church. And so I want to tell you this morning what our solution is and how we need to grow this solution. On Sundays, the Oceaners host a small group at their home consistently, virtually every single week, right? And they share in a meal together. They spend time praying with one another. They're dedicated to the teaching of the apostles, they have a shepherd that comes and shares with them and encourages them and, and walks them through some of the things that they're facing and struggling with. There is a, a, a church that meets in the home of the Harleys, or not always in their home, but, you know, their home adjacent, we'll say. Um, they get together, and they oftentimes share in a meal with one another. Uh, sometimes share in a meal with one another, but they are dedicated to the apostles' teaching and to the sharing of life together, to praying for one another. There is a church that meets in the home of the Dunnings on Friday night. Now, if you're under or above a certain age, we're probably going to you know, check your credentials and tell you this is the young adult small group. But Wayne, if you want to show up, we might give you some credit, okay? We meet together. We share a meal. We pray with one another. Sometimes Chris talks for too long about a particular topic that they've managed to introduce to him on that particular evening. But we share life together. There's a group that meets, I'm going to say on Tuesdays. I put it up here as Tuesdays, but I could be wrong. There's a Tuesday quilting group that meets here at the building, and Nancy makes sure that every single one of those begins with a devotional time, a reflection on the Word of God, a sharing of life together. And there are individuals that come to this church who have only come here because they got to know about our church through Nancy's quilting small group. Now, they're not meeting in a home, so I'm going to make an exception here. We need more small groups. The ones we have, I think, are very successful. People who attend them are being built up and encouraged and edified to the glory of God and for the work of the kingdom. But that's three, let Nancy in there too, four small groups that exist. And even if they all reached the maximum number of 25 people, we're going to say maximum, but we'll you know, play with that. That's not enough for the people that are in this room this morning. I want to encourage you to pray about this. I am of the opinion that a small group needs either a host who is consistent 
or they need a facilitator who's consistent. Now, if they've got both, that's pretty awesome, but they need one or the other, a home to meet in on a regular basis or someone to feed them spiritually on a regular basis. If you have been wondering what your chore in the church is and you own a home, guess what? I think God might be calling you to host a small group. If you are someone who's been wondering what your chore in the church is and you have a desire to encourage people to contemplate Scripture, to grow in their faith, a desire to pray with them about the things that are going on in their lives and make sure that others are praying for them as well, maybe God is calling you to be a facilitator for a small group. Maybe you and your spouse together are the kind of people that want to host and facilitate. I would like to see our congregation double the number of small groups we have. That would accommodate everyone in this room. It wouldn't quite accommodate everyone who's on our member list. But I think this is a chore that we've neglected a little bit. We have some folks that have been doing this chore and doing it well, but it's a big chore that probably needs more than one hand set to it. And so I'm encouraging you this morning to pray about whether or not you could host or facilitate a small group. Now, here's the, here's the problem. A lot of people are like, well, my home's never clean because I've got children and my children are messy. Most people don't care whether or not you have crayons on your floor when they walk in the door or maybe even like a grease print from their you know, hand on the oven or the fridge because kids are greasy and messy. I know I have two of them. Some of you are thinking, there's, there's no way that I could possibly host people in my home. You know what? There are people that would be perfectly happy to visit your home because their home's a bigger mess than yours is, all right? Just being honest here. Some of you are thinking, I don't know enough about Scripture to facilitate a discussion on the Bible. You know, I, I'm... I've only been a Christian for 30 years and I just don't know what I would even talk about, right? This is the mindset of a lot of people is I'm not a teacher. Well, you know what? Facilitating and teaching are two different things. A facilitator just gets the discussion started. Here's a question we should talk about. Here's a verse that we should read together. Hey, what do you think about this particular thing that we've been studying on Sunday morning? Get the conversation started. Make sure that the conversation happens. Make sure that people are asking questions about themselves and about the others in the group that are worth praying over. We need more small groups, and I want to encourage you this morning to be praying about whether or not God is calling you to make this your chore in the church, the way in which you contribute to the household, to show that you belong to the household, because there are things that people are missing out on that only happen in groups that are smaller than we can do on Sunday morning because we don't have enough small groups for them. Here's the deal. If we start new small groups, some of you who are not called to be hosts or facilitators need to show up to them because you are missing out on things that can only happen in small groups. Small groups succeed when there are people who are willing to host and people who show up. I want to encourage you this morning one more time. I'm using this word encouragement because I, I don't want to bag on us, but I think there's something good that God has in store 
for the Newburgh Church of Christ. Some good things happened just this morning. We recognized a new elder. We got to celebrate again another baptism. We've had a lot of baptisms this year, whether you know it or not. I do the math, and we've got a lot going on. There are good things happening here. God has more in store for us. And I think if we pick up the chores that we're called to do, even more will happen. Be praying about this. If you are interested, if it's even piqued your curiosity about hosting or facilitating a small group, I, I can tell you, you know, I can talk for hours. I can give you hours worth of information that you would need in order to make this happen. But all you need to know is that it's what you're called to do. Let's pray. Father God, we, we like what we're doing this morning. We think it's a good thing. We are glad we get to gather together as a family and to worship and to, to read and to study and to commit ourselves to, to good things and to remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But Father, there are things that just can't happen in this room right now. Things that need to happen in smaller groups. Father, we pray that we would, we would recognize uh, those who are called to that role, to serve and bless the community by hosting them in their homes, being the church that meets in their home. Father, we pray this morning that you would stir in the hearts of those who are capable and those who maybe don't feel so capable a desire to, to host and facilitate small groups. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so really quick, because this is going to be a, another long one. Uh, I want to tell you this. Jesus often met with gigantic crowds of people. He proclaimed big ideas to hundreds or thousands. But the transformation happened with 12 people. The real transformation, the change that took people from having, having spiritual gifts to using those spiritual gifts happened in a small group. 12 folks. He gathered them together, he spoke over them, he prayed for them, he corrected them when they needed to be corrected. And they went off, and they used their gifting to bless the community, to grow the kingdom, to share the word of God with those who needed it. Jesus was a believer in small groups. He had the first Christian small group, those who followed Christ small group. If you are someone who wants to grow in your relationship with Jesus, if you're curious about what it is that he's doing in, in our lives and what he wants to do in your life, if you don't know him, if you, if you don't know his story, but you're interested in knowing more about him, uh, I want to let you know that this morning we would be happy to pray with you. We'd be happy to walk alongside you. We'd be happy to teach you and to invite you into a small group to spend time so that you can get to know more about what it is that Jesus desires for you and you can grow in your faith and understanding. If you have trouble that you're facing in your life, Jesus often addressed that in a small group situation. Take Peter aside and correct him when he needed it. If you're someone who is, is uh, fearful, if you're experiencing pain, difficulty, loss, suffering, I think we can do something about that this morning. I'd be happy to pray with you. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. You got to see some of our elders here this morning. They would be happy to pray with you. Their wives would be happy to pray with you. We have some other ladies here this morning that would be happy to pray with you as well. If you have any need of the church, if there's any way that we can bless and encourage you, 
I'd invite you to join me at the back of the auditorium as we stand and as we sing.